What is up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Rewired Soul Podcast. And today I have an amazing guest. He's a, a professor, uh, a philosopher, and yeah, his name's uh, David Smith. And he he wrote a book uh, called Inhumanity. He has a few books, and he has uh, another book called Making Monsters coming out later this year. But anyways, I, I picked up his book on inhumanity because like like many of you you know last year during 2020 i i i just saw what was you know i saw what was happening and and how it keeps happening you know with the death of george floyd and brianna taylor and ahmaud arbery and so many other people that we've lost and and i'm just confused i'm like what's going on right how is it 2021 and we still have white supremacists how do we still have these these massive issues with racism and i i'm trying to learn as much as possible because for those of you who don't know i'm i'm half black but i i look white so you know i have this privilege and i haven't experienced things that a lot of my own family members have dealt with but you know i know a lot of people want to learn more about this and understand what's going on like the biggest question we have is like why and david you know is somebody who educates people through philosophy and talks about race and racism and inhumanity and dehumanization and all that. So, so anyways, we have a great conversation, but before we get started, if you are new to the podcast, make sure you, you subscribe to it. If you're listening on Apple, make sure that you're following it on Spotify and all of my social media links are down in the description below, along with uh, the social media links of the guests and his book and all that kind of stuff. But, do me a favor, if you like this episode, if you think that this episode can help educate some people that you know or someone might be interested in this book or just even the conversation, make sure you share this on social media, all right? But anyways, without further ado, here's my conversation with David Smith. Hey David, uh, thank you for coming on the podcast, and I hope you're you're doing well today. So yeah, let's jump right into it. So, so yeah, since since the election of Donald Trump back in 2016, we've seen this rise in hate crimes, and like many people, I've personally wanted to educate myself about what's going on. So, like when I saw your book on inhumanity, I, I knew I had to read it. So in the book, you cover a wide range of subjects from how different races and religions are treated as well as the treatment of animals. And sometimes words like, you know, inhumanity are thrown around as these kind of blanket statements. So in the context of your book, can you explain what what your definition of inhumanity is and kind of how we see it happening in society today. Hi, Chris. Thanks for inviting me on the podcast. Inhumanity is a very broad and somewhat impressionistic term. And it covers a lot of the bad things that human beings do to one another, denigration, enslavement, oppression, killing, and so on. 
My primary target in the book on inhumanity is the phenomenon of dehumanization. Dehumanization, as I use the term, means something very, very particular. It consists of thinking of others as subhuman creatures, as dangerous or unclean animals, or as monstrous or demonic beings. Now dehumanization, which is to my mind the epitome of inhumanity, is of course related to what I call nearby phenomena, racism, sexism, ableism, transphobia, homophobia, and so on. So inhumanity for me concerns all of these things, but especially dehumanization and the theoretical apparatus that I use to understand it. Of course, we see all these phenomena in the world today. My focus when I write about nearby phenomena is mostly on racism. Now, I actually don't like the term racism. I don't like it because it means too many different things. Charges of racism are too easily deniable because of that. So it's ceased to become informative or politically useful. But to my mind, and we can get into this a little bit later, dehumanization is very, very closely tied to racism. Racism is the first step towards dehumanizing people, thinking of them as subhuman beings, fit to be exploited or killed, locked away, denigrated, and so forth. What all of these forms of inhumanity have in common is hierarchy. The notion that some beings are higher than others and some are lower than others. And by higher and lower, what I mean is having greater intrinsic value or less intrinsic value. The degree to which a being or a group of beings, because these forms of inhumanity all pertain to groups or categories, boxes that we put people in, all of them involve the idea that the denigrated group, members of the denigrated group rather, have lives that do not matter or do not matter as much as our lives. Yeah, it's it's really interesting and, and I love how you you break it down in your book and you know you you get into the nuances and you know, you bring up a, a, a great point how, you know, uh, even terms like racism, they've been, been turned to these these terms where it's difficult to even pinpoint it. It gives people this plausible deniability and all of that. And something something that I, you know, that draws me to books like 
yours on on these subjects is you know it 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 seems to me as though a lot of people don't realize that we're doing this but you know in in my opinion like when we're looking at you know just the way humans are we're always you know uh seeking some kind of social status we're putting ourselves into groups into boxes and we're identifying as as different things right but we we have this kind of blind spot where you know people want to kind of neglect that it happens with different you know groups of people whether it's you know by race or sex or you know uh sexual preference or or anything like that um but yeah so so going back to just 2020 which was you know, when a lot of people started jumping into this conversation, but yeah, like what we saw happen to George Floyd was appalling, but we also lost people like Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor. And, you know, I'm, I'm half black, but I'm what people would call white passing. So I only see what happens to black Americans through the lens of you know, the black side of my family and these these tragedies that we see on the news. So, you know, Brianna and George were both killed by the police and Ahmad was killed by, you know, what some would call, you know, these these quote unquote like vigilantes. So when it comes to how the police and the justice system treats black Americans, do you think this is an issue with inhumanity? Like, how does racism play a role in, you know, the conversation of inhumanity, even when it's unconscious racism? As I said, racism is intimately tied to dehumanization. The relationship is so close that I refer to dehumanization as racism on steroids. Now, as I said, uh, a moment ago, I don't really like the term racism because it's become vague and easily deniable. One can accuse someone of racism and they might respond, oh no, I don't hate black people, as though racism is all about hate. So, well, let me put it bluntly. I think that racism in the sense of hierarchy of intrinsic value, in the sense that these others, those who are not us, those who are not our kind, whoever we are, are inferior, that is built into the concept of race itself. So in my view, as long as we affirm race, which is a fiction, scientifically speaking. It has no scientific basis whatsoever. And I would add a toxic, dangerous fiction. As long as we affirm race, we have racism. Because racial categories are born and out of and constituted by relations of domination. So, Yes, of course, in the United States, in particular, race and notions of race and preoccupations with race are all pervasive. 
we're all marinated in this ideology. The United States has never confronted its racial atrocities properly. And I know this because I teach on race and racism. Uh, and as a philosopher, I'm, I'm really quite centrally concerned with notions of race and racism. And believe me, the young people in my classes don't have a clue about just how terrible the history of race has been and just how terrible the consequences of racialization are today. And these young people, of course, these are students in a liberal arts institution. They are, in terms of education, pretty elite. So what applies to them, I think applies to Americans generally. We have not come to grips with this and we have a great deal of resistance coming to grips with it because in denying the horrific racial history of this nation, not just this nation, but I'm a firm believer in everyone handing, hanging out their own dirty laundry. We've been able to maintain certain illusions about ourselves, illusions of American exceptionalism. And so, yes, of course, the treatment of black people and not only black people, of Native Americans, for instance, is deeply influenced by the history that constitutes the present day mindset. Yeah, you bring up such a such an interesting point, and it's it's wild to me, right? Like, I'm you know I'm 35, and uh, you know not not just you know millennials like myself, but you know people younger than me, and uh, you know like when this stuff happened last last year, I was kind of surprised at how many people didn't realize how bad it is and what's going on. And, you know, I can only imagine like when you're, <laughs> when you're teaching classes on race and racism and stuff and, you know, people just kind of being surprised, but you know, a lot of us don't know what we don't know. And there are interesting arguments about, you know, we don't, you know, we don't want to know about these things. Right. I, I saw an interesting paper that was arguing that, you know, uh, we deny certain aspects of privilege because to to acknowledge it would then <laughs> maybe take away some of our privilege, right? So there's there's kind of this, you know, willful blindness in in some cases. But you know, I'm so so grateful for people like you who dedicate your life and you know not only tries to teach young people but you also write books to discuss this and educate people and i think we we all need to do you know a better job of just being aware of you know uh, what other people are dealing with something i've i've just noticed is there's this kind of common thing where people assume like well since i don't personally experience this or since i haven't personally witnessed this it must not happen right and and then when you know, like the all the stuff that happened last year with, you know, George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor, you know, then everybody's caught off guard. But, you know, there, there's more going on in the world than just our personal experience, you know. Um, but, yeah, so 
So something interesting that came up in your book, um, it's, it's, it's on uh, essentialism, which is something I've been really interested in lately. It's something I just recently started learning about. And you have an entire chapter titled Essence, and you dive deep into how this kind of factors in with the idea of inhumanity. And, you know, we, we see how essentialism causes people to spend enormous amounts of money on something that was like worn by a celebrity or how we get extremely attached to an item from someone passed away, uh, who passed away because, you know, it, we believe it has this, this essence. But I thought it was interesting how you brought this up in the subject of inhumanity. So can you explain how essentialism plays into inhumanity and how it negatively affects how we see these, you know, quote unquote others? And do you believe essentialism is a, uh, a good or bad part of human nature as a whole? Well, let's start with a puzzle, shall we? Suppose that you, the listener, are a Nazi, a committed SS officer. And suppose, which is actually true, I am a Jew. You, as someone who has absorbed Nazi ideology, Consider me a member of an alien, inferior, and dangerous race. You see me as essentially criminal. And in fact, you see me as an untermensch, a subhuman. Now, how is that possible? We Americans are, because of facts about our history, associate race very closely with skin color. In fact, the phrase, as Martin Luther King used it, the color of one's skin is often used as a synonym for race. But in the Nazi case, of course, that doesn't apply. The Nazis considered Jews as their racial inferiors. That is, they considered them as evil, predatory, destructive, racialized beings. But that wasn't clearly flagged by Jewish appearance. Jewish people were for the most part indistinguishable from those who Nazis would consider members of the master race. So what's going on there? There are many other examples of people regarded racially, which fit that same pattern. So any account of race that we have has got to be able to explain both, say, to just take two examples, the idea that people of African descent belong to the black race, and the idea that people of Jewish descent belong to the Jewish race. I think that the notion of race has three components. And this is going to get us to essentialism. First of all, the idea is that there are a small number of fundamentally different kinds of people. There's us, and there's them, and they are fundamentally different than us. And by fundamentally, I mean 
irrevocably. I mean their racial assignment, that is the category to which they are assigned, is supposed to be permanent, a life sentence. Second, the idea is these others are our inferiors. When I say our inferiors, it it's whoever is doing the racializing. Third, membership in the racial category is transmitted biologically by descent. That's why in the United States, whether or not you were black was a matter of your ancestry, not your appearance. The one drop rule is about ancestry. Same with the Nazis, whether or not you are Jewish is not a matter of your appearance or your religious affiliation. It's a matter of your ancestry. And of course, it's not surprising then to, to, to hear that the Nazis were inspired by American racist legislation. The 1935 Nuremberg Laws were inspired by the American Jim Crow Laws. So let's ask a seemingly naive question. What, why, why should ancestry be relevant to race? Well, the idea, which is extraordinarily pervasive, is that race is transmitted through something in the body. And that's what we refer to as the essence. Now, when we talk about essentialism, in this context, the term has a very long history, going back to the ancient world, can mean lots of different things. In the context of my work, by essentialism, I mean what's called psychological essentialism. Psychological essentialism is a term coined by two psychologists in 1989, and it refers to the following. It is a psychological disposition, a tendency, to divide the world up into what we philosophers call natural kinds. Natural kinds are kinds of things that exist independently of how we label them, of our taxonomic practices, and so on. Biological species, chemical elements. These are two paradigmatic examples. That's the first part, but the essentialism comes in with the idea that membership in any of these kinds is determined by something deep and unobservable in the individual. And that's what the essence is supposed to be. So for instance, uh, what makes a dog a dog, according to the essentialist mindset, is not that it wags its tail and is furry and goes woof woof. It's because it possesses something deep, the dog essence. No matter how it looks, anything that has the dog essence is a dog. The same principle was applied to human beings. To be human is to possess a human essence, no matter what you look like. And in the past, this was equated with the human soul. The human soul was a stand-in for the human essence. Nowadays, 
the genome fills that role in the essentialistic thinking of many. Now, the essence is imagined often to be carried in bodily fluids, in the blood, in semen. Sometimes it's imagined to be carried by maternal milk, which is why during World War II, the Red Cross segregated blood supplies. The Nazis did this too, by the way. They segregated Aryan blood from Jewish blood. And the American Red Cross segregated black blood from white blood because of the folk idea that the racial essence is, is transmitted in the bloodline. So if a white soldier on the battlefield is given black blood in a tr needed transfusion, that white soldier might be contaminated with blackness. Essentialism, so is, essentialism is vital for understanding how racial thinking works. And it is, of course, scientifically absurd but it has a very powerful grip on the human imagination. It's also vital for understanding dehumanization. If we come back to our example, you, the SS officer, are looking at me, the Jew, and you see someone, a being, who is indistinguishable outwardly from anyone you would consider a genuine human being, and yet you consider me a subhuman. How does that work? I mean, I'm bipedal, I wear clothes, I speak your language, I put up an umbrella when it rains, I read the newspaper, I love my children, on and on and on and on. Well, the idea here, the idea behind humanization is, although I might look human, although I am human on the outside, inside where it matters, my essence is of something else. My essence is more akin to the essence of a vermin or a demon or a monster. I am, so to speak, a counterfeit human. I'm a subhuman passing as human. So if you think about it this way, essentialism in our dealings with much of the natural world is relatively harmless and in our past was probably quite helpful because it allowed us to make generalizations about members of biological taxa. So we, we could infer that if one rattlesnake is poisonous, then the whole lot is poisonous because the poisonousness is part of the rattlesnake essence. But when we apply essentialistic thinking to human groups, it's terrible, it's dangerous, it's toxic. It leads to genocide and the very, very worst things human beings do to one another. David, you you just you just blew my mind. And I could honestly sit here and just talk about this all day long. Uh yeah, I was just I was just having a conversation about this because something that I'm very passionate about is just, you know, uh understanding science or, you know, even just for the average person to just understand it and ask questions and be skeptical and, you know, there's like you mentioned, like there's these, you know, essentialism is relatively harmless. And you touched on, you know, evolutionary uh, psychology a little bit and why we needed to develop essentialism. But 
you know, like uh, in my opinion, like when I when I look at these things, there's there's so much bad that can come from it. Um, you know, and I, <laughs> it's crazy. Maybe it's just because I'm not, you know, <laughs> uh, well versed on history. But I, I didn't even know that, you know, there were there was separating blood by race and, you know, these ideas that it can contaminate. But anyways, what I'm getting at is, you know, I I hate the slippery slope argument, but we, I, it it feels to me that you could see how magical thinking can kind of spiral into other areas so if if you think this one thing over here has an essence then you know without even thinking about it you could say oh uh, a human a race uh, you know whatever has an essence and like you said it can lead to some of the worst human behaviors that we've ever seen right and we we no longer look at people as individuals but oh you have this this part of your ancestry so that must be you know in you right I, re I remember you know reading one study where people wouldn't <laughs> because of essentialism people wouldn't accept uh they were less likely to an ex accept an organ that they needed to live if it came from you know uh someone who was like you know a bad person and you know that's wild because we think that their essence is going to be transferred to us so yeah, it's just it's it's just something that I, I think you know we all need to be more aware of and ask ourselves like where you know where is this feeling coming from and how how logical how rational you know is it? Um, but yeah, uh, in in one chapter that I found really interesting in your book, it was on morality and something I think about a lot is that most people uh, don't believe they're a, you know a, a what you you know call a bad person. And there's that old saying that everyone is the hero of their own story. And in your chapter on morality, you start off by discussing how humans go to war and how people commit these hate crimes. But oftentimes they, they do this out of some sense of morality and they believe that they're doing the right thing. And it's terrible to think, but even the Nazis in Germany thought they were doing, you know, what was, you know, quote unquote, right. So what, what do you believe people can do to recognize that our moral sense doesn't always lead us in the right direction? And do you think we could have better conversations with people who have opposing views if we understood the different people uh, or that we under, if we understood that different people have varying senses of morality? Well, yes. I mean, every genocide that I have studied, and I've studied quite a few, has involved the belief on the part of those who commit atrocities that they are saving the world from evil. The Nazis certainly thought this. They saw their program as morally infused to rid the world of a dangerous, corrupt, criminal element. Similarly, the re-enslavement and oppression of African Americans in the aftermath of the Civil War and the collapse of Reconstruction was viewed by those whites who tortured and oppressed and terrorized black people that they were doing the right thing, that they were restoring the natural order, that they were making the world safe, that they were protecting 
victimized white people from these monstrous predatory black men. We can look at the Rwanda genocide or the persecution of Rohingya in Myanmar, and we discern the same thing. So morality is by no means always a, uh, a benign thing. Those who try to influence us to harm others, to kill others, to oppress others, very, very, very often play on our moral sentiments. Propaganda, which is vital for understanding dehumanization because dehumanization, you see, doesn't arise spontaneously from within the human mind. It is, as I describe it in the book, a psychological response to political forces. Propaganda, skillful propagandists, be they politicians, scientists, right-wing radio hosts, celebrities, if they are successful, what they are able to do is play on human hopes and fears and our desire to rid the world of danger and evil. So yes, of course, morality is not straightforward. It's hostage to feeling. In fact, I think it's very largely about feeling. I don't believe that there are moral facts. I believe that what morality is all about is the kind of world one wants to live in. So when I make a moral claim, I'm saying, in effect, this is the kind of world I want to live in. But I'm actually doing something more than that. And this makes morality and moral claims, um, uh, what's the word I want? It, it makes them uh, prone to controversy. If my moral position is a, essentially a statement of the world I want to live in, the properties of the world I want to live in, then in doing so, making such a claim, I'm making a claim on you. That is, in wanting the world to be a certain sort of way, I'm wanting you to want the world to be a certain way. And that simple fact about moral claims is in a way self-undermining because in making a claim on you, I'm doing something which is often hostile to dialogue. So yes, if we could stand back a little bit, I think perhaps we could have better conversations with those whom we disagree with. And something, by the way, that I always try to do. People who have ideas that are, well, what I deem repugnant, I want to talk to them. And I want to express genuine interest and curiosity about how they came to their position. Now, my hope, of course, is that I can modify their views through a conversation. Sometimes that's not possible. 
dialogue requires two people with a sincere interest in engaging openly with issues. But you never know. Even if my interlocutor gets abusive and throws tantrums, and as I'm sure you know, this happens a lot on social media, perhaps I've planted a seed of doubt in their mind that I'm not an evil, woke, libtard, social justice warrior that they have created in their imagination. Yeah, that was that was very that very well said, and and yeah, like you're, you're saying, if we could just have these conversations, maybe we won't be, you know, that that like you said, uh, evil woke libtard <laughs> social justice warrior. Um, but yeah, this is you know, it's it's a lot about you know this this kind of just like trying to understand and 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 get to you know know people. And personally, personally, I you know I realized you know, the differences in these, like, you know, uh, more uh, morality and how subjective it is when I got sober through 12-step programs and, you know, just quick overview of, you know, the fourth step. Uh, some people, you know, familiar with recovery know this, but it's about, you know, uh, recognizing, you know, the, the wrong things that you did. And then later on, you do a nine step and you make amends and, you know, all this stuff. And when I was working in treatment, a lot of people said, like, you know, and people say, ask this in meetings, uh, people new to recovery. And I know I did when I was new, like, is this something I need to make an amends for? Is this something that needs to go on my fourth step? And the answer you get from a sponsor or people of time is, you know, like it's, it's up to you, right? Is this something that's going to make it difficult for you to sleep at night? And anyways, what I'm getting at is something that I realized, you know, as I, you know, grew older and went through 12 step programs and just started looking at the world in a different way is there are things that, you know, bother me that don't bother other people. And I, an example I always use is, you know, I'm a vegetarian, right? I was a meat eater for a very long time, but now I'm a vegetarian. And you can get into all these different moral arguments about eating meat or not eating meat and all this, but a lot of it depends on how we were raised, what our background is, what's been ingrained in us, all that kind of stuff. But anyways, what I'm getting at is, yeah, like you said, like it, if we could have these conversations, understand where these people came from, because if you're raised in a household that has certain views and you're told this is right, this is wrong, um, or even in just different parts of, you know, the world or even parts of, you know, the country, right? Like people in the Bible Belt have different views on morality than someone from, you know, places like uh, California or, you know, Seattle or New York City and and all that. So we need to get a better understanding of where people come from, where their beliefs came from, where their ideals of moral morals came from, where morality came from. And, you know, why there are things that are like objectively awful, like genocide and all that we need to, you know, I believe that we need to sit back and say like, why, why does this person, what, what happened where they think this is, you know, morally justified to, do this and treat people a certain way and you know all that um but but yeah anyways uh last question for you this is something that i'm always curious to get people's opinions about um you you had a, a chapter on uh dangerous speech and and this is such a, a tricky topic especially here in the united states due to the first amendment so on one end you have these free speech absolutists who believe 
people should be able to just say whatever they want. But then you have people who think, you know, speech should be, you know, at least somewhat censored. But I think most of us are, are, in the, are in the middle and we realize that there's like this gray area. So what are your thoughts on recent events on social media with, you know, these platforms uh, banning Donald Trump or QAnon supporters and who they deem as people spreading, you know, dangerous speech? At what point do you believe speech is dangerous because, you know, it can cause harm or, or turn into action. Oh, well, you know, one, one, one can't really generalize about this. Um, so just, you know, my starting point here is I think we need to be very, very, very careful about blocking speech, about suppressing speech. My inclination is that speech should only be suppressed if it is clearly and obviously incitement to harm. Now that leaves a lot of dangerous speech unsuppressed. And there I think, um, I mean, one way to deal with it is counter speech. Um, but unfortunately, dangerous speech, I think, tends to be more powerful than the speech we might use to counter it. You know, the, the uh, white supremacists, the neo-Nazis, they have apocalyptic scenarios that they describe. They play in our sense of vulnerability they engage in stories that move us to want to protect ourselves and our loved ones. And that unfortunately move us to wanting to harm, abuse, and oppress others. So, you know, speech in itself Dangerous speech in itself, say white supremacist speech, for example. The only reason we really need to worry about that is because it ignites, it has the power to ignite pervasive ideologies that are cemented in to our culture. You know, white supremacism is sedimented into the American story. It's bubbling there just below the surface, simmering. And the problem is that this kind of dangerous rhetoric has the capacity, if the social conditions are right, to set it aflame. So that, you know, suggests an obvious entailment, doesn't it? Yes, of course, we need to regulate as minimally as possible uh, dangerous speech. But what will be most powerful, most important, and you know, I say this because dangerous speech can hide itself, right? It, dog whistles can be dangerous speech. We're overtly, explicitly 
You're not saying of some group they're subhumans. You're just using words like they're swarming across the border, that mosques are breeding ground for terrorism, that uh, black men are super predators. You're not quite referring to them as demonic subhumans, but your receptive audience will connect the dots. So to get back to the point I wanted to make, the priority should be working on uprooting and modifying the underlying ideological framework that makes such speech powerful, that makes it evocative, that leads it to move people to action. You know, look, if the United States did not have white supremacist ideology baked into its very foundation in history, if we didn't have legacies of genocide, which we can't really bring ourselves to face, then someone referring to black people or Latinos or Native Americans as monstrous or inferior, they'd be laughed out of town. Their speech would not only be innocuous, it would be silly, but it's that deeper context that makes it dangerous. And that's what we most need to address. Yeah, very, very, very well said. And, uh, and yeah, thank you so much for uh, coming on the podcast and, and answering these questions. And uh, yeah, um, for, for everybody listening, uh, again, that's, that's David Smith. And we were talking about his amazing book on inhumanity. Um, so down in the description below, make sure you check it out. Grab yourself a copy. It's an amazing, amazing book. Like if you found any part of this conversation interesting, it's, it's even better in his book. And, you know, uh, as we discussed throughout this conversation, it's, it's an important subject to understand what's going on and try to get in the minds of people who, you know, think this way and have these ideas. But also, also, uh, later this year, David has another book coming out called Making Monsters, The Uncanny Power of Dehumanization. So make sure you keep an eye out for that. And I've provided uh, David's social media down in the description below as well. So make sure you're following him so you stay up to date on his new books and everything like that coming out and all the other projects that he's working on. Um, but anyways, anyways, if you liked this episode of the podcast, do me a favor, like I said, uh, to help, you know, the reach of the podcast. Make sure that uh, if you're on Apple, make sure you subscribe, uh, rate it, leave a little review if you would, if you're on Spotify, Follow it, and if you want to support the podcast, what I'm doing here in any way, and help, you know, uh, support my 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 reading habit, uh, there's some ways to support the the podcast down in the description below. Uh, you can become a patron where you get access to early and exclusive content. Uh, you can get some of my books at TheRewiredSoul.com, and there's also an affiliate link down below for uh, BetterHelp. Uh, it's online therapy. It's a service that I've personally used, and yeah, it's it's been super helpful to me. So if you'd like to improve your, your, your 
mental health and work with a therapist from the comfort of your home, uh, check out BetterHelp Online Therapy. But anyways, once again, thank you to David for coming on the podcast and make sure you check out his book. And I hope you all have a magnificent rest of your day and we will see you next Wednesday with a brand new episode.